brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. You're listening to Bigfoot Eyewitness Radio. For centuries, eyewitnesses have reported seeing giant creatures in the woods of North America and beyond. These forest giants have been known by many names, including Sasquatch, Oma, Yowie, Yeti, and their most commonly used name, Bigfoot. Join us as eyewitnesses share the details of their encounters with these forest giants on the show. And now your host, Vic Cundiff. Hi everyone, thanks for listening. If you've had a Bigfoot encounter of your own and would like to be a guest on the show, please go to BigfootEyewitness.com and submit a report. I'd love to hear from you. This is Dr. Brian D. Parsons, and I'm here tonight to talk to you about one of my favorite local stories. That is about the Grassman, Ohio's Bigfoot. One of my first big impressions of Bigfoot was sometime in the late 1970s, watching the reruns of the original In Search Of television show that was hosted by Leonard Nimoy. I remember the voice of Spock presenting me compelling information, telling me to believe in the possibility that such a wild creature or even a wild man may exist. While the series covered many paranormal and conspiracy-themed stories, the Bigfoot episode and imagery was one that made me question my preconceived notions of how the world worked around me and made me question what I thought to be true. I was raised to believe that such things did not exist, but I began to wonder if I was just being told that so I could sleep better at night. I had little to worry about, though, as, well, Bigfoot was a West Coast thing. That's what Leonard Nimoy told me. He said Sasquatch started back in 1811, and a compelling incident in 1924 happened with miners in a gorge in Washington State near Mount St. Helens that would eventually be called Ape Canyon. I knew beyond the television show that other sightings had happened in British Columbia, and eventually a series of tracks discovered by a bulldozer operator named Jerry Crew in 1958 near Bluff Creek, California, would lead to the now-famous generic moniker Bigfoot. That was coined by the press. Bigfoot sightings continued to build, and 
all-time high in interest and debate into the creature's existence boiled over in the 1970s, along with the largest percentage of overall sightings, hoaxes are genuine, across the United States. Now, my interest in the creature started a few years after I began investigating ghosts way back in 1996. Now, I'm not exactly sure what it was that drew me to pursue cryptozoology and eventually looking for Bigfoot and all the other mysterious animals that go with that topic. It might have been something to do with infrasound or communication with extrasensory perception, as I had researched in the ghost field. Granted, it might just have been the fact that this field, like ghosts and UFOs, is considered to be a paranormal field. Moving into the field of cryptozoology was an easy fit for me. I spent many years hiking and backpacking solo in the woods of southern Ohio, as well as my favorite spots in the Allegheny National Forest in neighboring Pennsylvania, about a two-hour drive away. I've always enjoyed nature and animals and had challenged myself many years ago to learn how to track and stalk animals. Either way, I realized that Bigfoot was the king of the field of cryptozoology, and despite wanting to learn all aspects of the field from others, it seemed that most groups in Ohio were geared toward finding Bigfoot. Well, I did my own research and tried to find my own cases. Eventually, I worked with the Sasquatch Research Initiative out of British Columbia, Canada, and I learned a lot from interviewing to conducting field investigations from the team of people in Sasquatch Research Initiative and and also dealing with other types of cryptid research cases, not just Bigfoot. And it wasn't much different than what I had been doing in the ghost field, but I learned new techniques that would help me conduct interviews and investigations, really any type of anomalous cases, a little bit more thorough. In January of 2009, I joined Crypto Squad USA, a collection of bloggers who reported to Nick Redfern for the regional U.S. offices of the Center for Fortean Zoology, which is based in the United Kingdom. I went on to publish my own book on cryptozoology titled Handbook for the Amateur Cryptozoologist in 2014. Later that year, the book was awarded in the top 10 cryptozoology books of 2014 by Lauren Coleman. Coleman also wanted to sell the book at his International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine, and along with that, he wanted to contribute a foreword to the book as well. So a second edition of the book was launched in 2015, and along the way, I've written articles for Cryptid Culture Magazine and have spoken at conferences and other events in Ohio and elsewhere talking about Bigfoot and other cryptids around the world. So some people might wonder, what's a guy in Ohio got to do with Bigfoot, and what is this grassman creature while we're at it? And is there a difference between grassman and Bigfoot? And maybe bigger and related questions are, why are there so many different names for Bigfoot, especially all over the world? And are these all the same creatures? And if there's so many names and sightings, why isn't Bigfoot proven to be real? Well, to begin to answer these questions, let me first start at the beginning with the state of Ohio. So kind of give away a little information. I've lived in Ohio for over 45 years, which I guess that kind of gives my age away a little bit. Now, but it may surprise some out there to hear that Ohio has a pretty rich history of Bigfoot sightings and actually ranks as one of the top states in sightings historically. Earlier in 2019, research leading up to the Travel Channel series In Search of Monsters compiled the listing of over 23,000 sightings across the United States. And of these sightings, the most took place in Washington with over 2,000 sightings. Obviously, none of these are confirmed sightings, and I'm sure that some of these might be hoaxes, misinterpretations, and maybe embellishments. Well, the number two state for Bigfoot sightings is California, followed by my neighboring states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, New York, 
and then Ohio, followed by Oregon and Texas. The Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, also known as BFRO, because everything in the paranormal has an acronym, has consistently ranked Ohio in the top five states through the years, and other groups rank Ohio in the top eight in overall Bigfoot reports yearly on a consistent basis. So looking at Ohio, Ohio was colonized by French fur traders in the early 1700s and then became a British colonial possession after the French and Indian War in 1754. And after the American Revolution, the land that now occupies Ohio became part of the Northwest Territory. And Ohio became a state back on March 1st, 1803, although a formal declaration was not made until 1953. And Ohio is named after the Iroquois Indian word Oyo, which translates to Great River. The Iroquois inhabited the area of Ohio around 1650. Prior to the Iroquois, other Algonquin language tribes inhabited the region for hundreds of years. The Monongahela culture, Spring Wells, and Fort Ancient culture occupied parts of Ohio all the way back to 500 AD. And during this time, the Ohio Hopewell culture ruled the land back to 200 BC. Going back further, the Adena culture possessed the area back to 1000 BC, and it is known that other cultures made their way through or to Ohio as far back as 14,000 to 8,000 BC. Well, unfortunately, we don't know much about the beliefs of these tribes, especially when it came to large hairy hominids. That is until the mid-1700s. So it's here that stories were purportedly passed down about wild and hairy men of the forests. But these stories were never substantiated with witnesses or reliable accounts of sightings. And many of these sightings were woven into the culture of those tribes, folklore, superstitions, and these were probably more godlike creatures than actual flesh and blood men. The Ohio history of Bigfoot can unceremoniously begin with a 1969 newspaper account from Gallipolis, Ohio. The area is in southeast Ohio along the Ohio River, and oddly, less than five miles down the river from an area known as Point Pleasant, West Virginia, which in just less than 100 years from then would be known for its own creature, the Mothman. The account in Gallipolis was uncovered by cryptozoologist Mark A. Hall, who sadly passed away in 2016. The account from January of 1869 was documented in the Minnesota Weekly Record and told of a hairy creature that jumped on a man who was riding in a carriage. The beast grabbed the man and threw him to the ground where he began to bite and claw at him. The man's daughter, who was riding along in the carriage, found the courage after a few moments to locate a stone that she threw and hit the creature in the ear, what she explained as a gorilla, to scamper back into the woods. Well, gorillas were only discovered about two decades prior to this event, although they were well known through articles covering the exploits of zoologist Paul Du Chelu. The article described the encounter as from a wild man who was naked, covered in hair, and gigantic in height. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 
on. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The biggest case in Ohio history comes from near the village of Minerva, Ohio, which is actually about 50 miles away from where I sit tonight here in Twinsburg, Ohio. From the case files of Ron Schaffner comes the story as it happened back in 1978. Sightings began in July and August of that year with one incident with children running home crying and completely frightened from what they had witnessed. To get an accurate portrayal of the events as they happen, I will read directly from Ron Schaffner's notes on the case. So he reports the incidents leading up to the August 21st sightings began about the first of the month. Mrs. Caton believes the creature's appearance were due to her husband, Herbert, cutting down the thick brush next to the pit and that he also had dumped some garbage around for the raccoons. Several nights later, the Caton's grandchildren and their friends came running into the house crying in a frightened state. They claimed to have seen a large hairy monster in the pit. Mrs. Caton and How Caton went outside to see what had scared them. That's then when they saw the creature that was covered in dark matted hair. They estimated it to be 300 pounds and 7 feet tall. It just stood there, said Mrs. Caton. It didn't move, but I almost broke my neck running back down the hill. Mrs. Caton claims she later observed the creature in the daylight. It was sitting in the pit, picking at the garbage. She could not make any facial features out due to the amount of long hair covering its face. She remembered that the creature had no visible neck. The sightings then really took off with the August 21st sighting. Evelyn Caton's family and friends were out on the front porch when they heard noises in the direction of an old chicken coop just to the right of the house. That's when they saw two pairs of yellow eyes that seemed to be reflecting a porch light. Scott Patterson went to his car, turned on the headlights in hopes of getting a better look. The eyes on what appeared to be two cougar light felines, then what looked like a large bipedal hairy creature, then stepped in and the large cats were then pushed to the background as if this creature was trying to protect them. The creature then proceeded to lurch towards Patterson's car. The witnesses fled to the house and called the Stark County Sheriff's Department. And while waiting for deputies, the bipedal creature appeared in the kitchen window about four yards from the kitchen table. Patterson pointed a 22 caliber pistol at it while Evelyn Caton loaded a 22 caliber rifle. The creature stood outside the window for close to 10 minutes. They could all clearly see the creature because of the back porch light. They decided they would not shoot at it unless the creature made any advances toward them. 
the bipedal creature suddenly left without harming anyone. It doesn't seem to want to bother anyone, said Mary Ackerman. It was just curious. We all felt that it wanted to be friends. Deputy Sheriff James Shannon arrived about 15 minutes after the call was made and about five minutes after the creature left the scene. A strong stench was still lingering in the area when Deputy Shannon began to interview the witnesses. Shannon later told reporters that it smelled like ammonia sulfur. Extra deputies were brought in and they searched the entire area on horseback and in jeeps. The land behind the Catons was an old abandoned strip mine, and beyond that were dense woods going up a gradual hill. Unusual but unsubstantiated footprints were also discovered all throughout the area. Then on August 22nd, Mrs. Mary Ackerman of Minerva drove to the Caton residence to pick up her daughter and a friend. Mrs. Ackerman is Evelyn Caton's daughter. And as she turned into the driveway, she saw the same creature staying on top of the hill next to the strip mine. She watched it until it walked out of her view. On August 23rd, the creature appeared again at the Caton residence. How Caton was not sure if it was the same thing. He fired a gunshot into the air and the figure departed. On September 8th, during the late night hours, Mrs. Ackerman observed two ape-like animals across the strip mine. She stated that she thought the creatures were standing in a tree, but she was not sure because of the distance. Again, she watched them for a little while until they were no longer visible in the thick weeds. Then on September 9th, Jim Rasseteer interviewed Harry Colt, who lives about five miles east of Minerva on US-30. He told Jim that he was walking through some woods by his house when he caught a glimpse of an unknown furry animal. Mr. Colt said that the animal was squatting next to a tree and let out a sound similar to a loud cough. Well, Schaffner had investigated other reports of large ape-like creatures in Ohio. In May of 1977, in an area west of Dayton, Ohio, two 13-year-old boys were walking a dog when they first encountered an awful stink like rotten eggs. They turned and encountered a nine-foot-tall creature with long arms that hung close to the ground. The boys and the dog ran with the creature chasing them to a soybean field near the home of one of the boys. Luckily, the creature had vanished. The Preble County Sheriff's Office was contacted and the two deputies responded. Uh, nothing was discovered in the area. And later, a farmer contacted another researcher who passed the information on to Schaffner that large footprints had been discovered on his land. The farmer's land was about a half a mile from the earlier encounter, and the tracks measured 14 inches long by 7 inches wide, and the distance between the tracks was about 6 and a half feet. Another major sighting that went on to become known as the Kenmore Grassman took place in 1988 and was investigated in 1995. Kenmore is a community located in the city of Akron, in the northeast part of Ohio. The location of the events are about a, really from where I'm sitting right now, about 35 minutes away. Investigators Terry Andrews, uh, Jody Cook, and George Clappison investigated this case. George Clappison interviewed Dale Atkins and his son Tim. Now these names are changed to protect their real names, and now they had lived in Fairlawn, Ohio. Dale described growing up experiencing Grassman on a number of occasions 
from hearing it crashing through the woods and swamps to observing tracks, which happened to be three-toed tracks. Tim had also observed the creature while camping and fishing in the area. Back in 1988, Tim had rocks thrown at him from what he saw was about 100 yards away, and the rocks seemed to drop straight down when they hit and didn't roll away. Tim went back home and got his father, and they both observed a seven-foot-tall creature weighing an estimated 300 pounds. They were able to get about 30 yards away from it before it departed. The two described other incidents like this one that were very similar and then considered the creature very intelligent. And they thought it also had the capability to communicate with mental telepathy, although that aspect is not explained in detail in the report. The team went to the original area in the earlier reports and were able to find areas in the woods where it looked like something big had gone through digging up roots and eating berries from the tops of the bushes. They were also able to find and cast three-toed tracks. There were dozens of other cases between these time frames conducted by these and other independent researchers as well as collected by larger organizations like the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization. So back to some of the original questions I asked. What makes the Grassman the Grassman and not Bigfoot? What makes these two separate creatures? And why are these two names for these creatures that seem to be the same thing? What's the deal? And why do we have so many all over the world? Well, this answer is multifaceted as part of it has to do with the location. I mean, who doesn't want their own monster named after its own town, right? So the Minerva case, Minerva, Ohio of 1978 is considered to be one of the biggest modern day sightings of the Grassman, yet the story behind it is often referred to as the Minerva Monster. So another creature nicknamed the Cedar Bog Monster is named after an area south of Urbana, Ohio. The entire region west of the Columbus area is rich with reports from the 1940s to today, including the largest concentration of cases in the 1970s when the whole United States was Bigfoot crazy. British Columbia researcher Christopher L. Murphy, who co-authored the book Bigfoot Encounters in Ohio, Crest for the Grassman in 2006, notes that the difference between the Grassman and Bigfoot are not in the creature's description, but in its habits. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So the height, weight, color, footprints, they're all in line with traditional Bigfoot sightings elsewhere in the United States. There are a few interesting things to note on this as there have been many cases of three-toed prints throughout the years. Three-toed prints are not solely a grassman trait and does not define the grassman as there have been five-toed prints discovered here in similar cases. Now we have Momo, the Missouri monster that terrorized residents in the city of Louisiana, Missouri, in the northeast part of the state along the Mississippi River back in 1972 was discovered to have three-toed prints. Uh, it also smelled like a skunk and was also seen carrying a dead dog under its arm, which are actually all traits of the grass man. Another famous creature that appeared off and on from 1971 to 1974 in the neighboring state of Arkansas was described as seven foot tall, smelling like a skunk, and rotting flesh and left three-toed tracks. This creature was named the Falk Monster that went on to have a movie made after it called The Legend of Boggy Creek that came out in 1972. Falk is over 550 miles away from where Momo was seen, so this is more than likely not the same creature. The Honey Island Swamp Monster was reported from 1963 through 1974 in Louisiana. This bipedal creature was also described as seven feet tall, smelling like a skunk and rotting flesh, and also left behind three-toed footprints. So three-toed Bigfoot-like creatures have also been described in Iowa in 1978 and Minnesota in 1989. And some hypothesize that the largest mammal with three toes ever to exist, the giant ground sloth, known as the Megatherium, could be behind these sightings. It's believed that the Mapinguari, a Bigfoot-like creature of Brazil, could be a megatherium, even though they are thought to be extinct and have been extinct for over 11,000 years. Another hypothesis is the three-toed creatures might be a cause from inbreeding of these Bigfoot-like creatures. Christopher Murphy outlines some of the general descriptions that define the grassman that include the creature's cry like a baby, but also scream like a woman. They also growl or bark. They're known to kill dogs. They're often seen in cornfields. They have a strong odor like rotten eggs and have been seen in small groups with up to five individuals. It's often related to strange deer kills, sometimes with the liver missing. The Ohio grassman is different than most Bigfoot sightings in Ohio, but Many of these habits and traits that I just mentioned overlap in other cases in Ohio and elsewhere. Many stories might be hoaxes, stories that are elaborate pranks that might include physical evidence such as tracks, nesting sites, or even tree structures. Other cases might be fraud. The case was made up or based on something other than what was described to being seen. The individual might want attention or just add to the growing database of sightings. The most common type of explainable case is misinterpretation. 
So many sightings might be tree stumps. They might be bears, deer, or just hearing sounds such as fox or owls and allowing the mind to fill in the blanks. Are there genuine Bigfoot and Grassman sightings out there? Possibly. But until hard evidence can satisfy a skeptical scientific community, these stories will be nothing more than stories, urban legends, and fodder for newspapers. On May 31st of 2019, Frank Trussell of Minerva, Ohio, was driving his Dodge truck when he was turning left from Lunar Road to Spring Road. After making the turn, Trussell's truck went left of center and off the left side of the road, taking out a fence post along with part of the fence. He told deputies he swerved to avoid a large Yeti standing in the roadway. Do we believe Trussell or do we just laugh it off? The area is in rural country area surrounded by farms. He was cited for operating a vehicle without reasonable control, and a Yeti was nowhere to be found. But no one even took any time to look for it. The latest sighting of a large bipedal creature in Ohio took place this year at Salt Fork State Park, which is known as a very big hotspot for Bigfoot sightings, and is home to a few Bigfoot-related conferences every year, and even has a primitive campsite named Bigfoot Ridge. The stories continue to pile up, but we are still far from many of the answers that we all seek and the proof that will bring this creature to reality. Where did the Appalachian Grassman come from, Brian? Grassman itself is uh, its not just Ohio. It's also Indiana and some other states have used the term Grassman. So it's not just Ohio, but we've adopted that as our own. It's also because these creatures being seen in fields, so cornfields here in Ohio and other fields, you know, grasses and weeds and things like that. So they just name it. It just gets that nickname. And it goes with the local names that all these creatures have all over the, you know, not just the United States, but all over the world. Oh, sure. No, that makes good sense. You told us about previous hotspots for sightings and the recent sighting at Salt Fork, but if someone wants to go out and have a grassman sighting now in Ohio, where would you recommend that they go? Well, I think the Salt Fork area is a pretty good area. And if you go to Southern Ohio, there's some state forests down there that you may have. But when you look at historically, sightings have happened all over the place. It's not just a, a forest. It's not just the woods. These happen in people's houses. I've had from where I sit here in Twinsburg, Ohio, just about five or six miles north of me, there's a gentleman that claims to have a Bigfoot in his backyard on the off occasion, but I don't think he's genuine with that. I think he's, I don't want to say making it up, but I think it's more of a hallucination or, or a wish or will. But there's also some of the inland lakes that are really just drinking reservoirs for the city of Akron have uh, many stories about Bigfoot surrounding those areas and people actually feeding them and trying to keep them away from not telling people who are researchers and investigators or the media that these creatures are there. So you never know where Bigfoot could be. Uh, they've been seen primarily on the eastern part of Ohio, but also the southern part, central and southern part, pretty much in the last 20, 30 years. But historically, you go back 80, 90 years, and it was all across the state. Pretty much there was no holds barred on where you could find one. But I would generally recommend anywhere in the eastern part or south eastern part of the state if you can do so. But obviously, uh, Salt Fork State Park is a giant park right here in the center of the state. A uh, nice little lake that goes around there and plenty of hiking places, tons of deer, and still tons of stories of Bigfoot. 
I still don't understand it, but for people who have never been to Ohio, there's a canard that floats around that there really wouldn't be enough tree cover to hide huge cryptids like grass men. What would you have to say to people like that who have never been to Ohio in the first place? Uh, well, Ohio is its a pretty green state nowadays. I mean, yeah, if you go back to 150, 200 years ago, Ohio is pretty much clear cut. And if you go back to the mid to late 1800s, Ohio had no deer. So they were gone. And eventually in the early 1900s, we brought deer in from West Virginia and neighboring states to replenish the deer. And our trees began to come back. So if Bigfoot was here, granted, we've seen Bigfoot hiding out in grass fields, in cornfields. So trees you know, may or may not be a necessity for creatures like this to hide. And we also point out that in southern Ohio and even central Ohio, there's plenty of cave systems throughout. So there's plenty of places for Bigfoot to hide. And you can even go to uh, – so if you go to southern Florida, you have the skunk ape. And if you've ever been down to the Everglades, you can see for miles in every direction. So where would a Bigfoot hide down there? Well, the answer is in alligator holes that are sometimes partially submerged. So Bigfoot can hide pretty much in any area. So you add cave systems. And uh, right now and here in Ohio, we have plenty of forests. We have many large state parks. There's actually a national forest 20 miles from where I'm sitting right now. It's a pretty large national forest just south of the Cleveland area. So even though we have these metro places, I'm close to Akron, about 20 miles away from Cleveland. There are still these giant patches of forest, again, where these things have been seen. And, and even in some rural areas, Geauga County, which is uh, northeast of where I'm sitting, is pretty much flat farmland type of areas. Not a whole lot of trees, small patches here and there, still plenty of Bigfoot sightings there. So you don't have to have forests to have Bigfoot. I think, unfortunately, that comes from our initial sightings of the Patterson-Gimlin film and uh, some of the stuff that people try to portray on their YouTube videos of quote-unquote capturing Bigfoot videos. And I'm using air quotes because there's just a lot of people that are just really creating frauds and, and fakes. So it's really hard as a Bigfoot researcher to cut through all the information that we have to focus on what really is going on out in our woods and our areas. So it doesn't have to be dense forests to have Bigfoot. It sure doesn't hurt, though. Oh, no. No, it definitely doesn't hurt. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. When you founded the Ohio Paranormal Investigation Network in 96, did Grassman sightings make up the bulk of your research, or did you put the same amount of time and research into all paranormal subjects back then? Actually, I started out as a ghost researcher and investigated uh, claims of ghosts pretty much in people's houses, although really we kind of started out as urban legend, folklore kind of things, and you know, the grass man was there, but it really wasn't anything that my group members had an interest in. And it kind of over time came from me having an interest in being out in the woods. I thought, well, you know what? This cryptozoology stuff might be a good fit for me. But, uh, you know, most of my group, they were not interested at all in uh, going out in the woods and looking for these creatures. They were pretty scared about that, but they were certainly okay with going into a haunted house where. You know, all kinds of other strange paranormal things could happen at will, but I don't know. To each his own, I thought, you know, I'm more comfortable in the woods sometimes than I am in a house. But uh, it, it did come later. Uh, but unfortunately, I did most of my investigations with other individuals or with other groups or pretty much on my own because the, the people in my group really didn't have an interest in that aspect of the paranormal well, I was pretty much, you know, operating the organization. All the emails came through me, and uh, I did try to start a kind of a, a UFO sector and a cryptozoology sector of it. Uh, hopefully, trying to funnel all those cases through uh, to myself. And you know, it wasn't too hard to get somebody to go out to interview somebody, which is always the the most important first step of any kind of case is to actually get out there as quick as you can and talk about that case. Uh, because the interview, it, it really is, is about the same. It doesn't matter if you're talking about a UFO, a ghost, or a Bigfoot in somebody's backyard. The the process to an, an actual interview is pretty much the same. So the interview aspect was usually okay, uh, but it came to actually getting out there and, and looking around for things. People were usually not okay with that because they were a little, a little scared of getting out there in the woods, which I, I guess I can kind of understand. But for me, uh, like I said, I enjoy going out in the woods. I enjoy looking at things to me it's the same as getting lost in new york city for some people to me I'm not comfortable in the city environment i'd rather be in the woods you know I'm, i can find my way around pretty well it's the same as other people looking at uh, street signs you know i look at other things and it's just to me is more comfortable but yeah the the group really didn't get into that we focused a uh, majority of our time on ghosts and uh, unfortunately you know the cryptid stuff kind of went to the wayside you told us how comfortable you are out in the woods, but has there been a time when you were out in the field where maybe something happened that caused you to second guess the logic of putting yourself in a position like that? Well, I can tell you from, you know, being a hiker and a backpacker, so I'm used to carrying everything on my back going in for two or three days at a time and then coming out. Yeah, I mean, when I first started, when I was in my 20s, I mean, I could honestly admit that there were times where I thought I was going to die. You know, sitting in my tent thinking, oh my gosh, here comes a bear. I'm going to die. Here it is. This is how I'm going to go out. But you try to overcome that fear. You you go outside and you look around. And uh, the one time I was extremely fearful of this, I saw two little porcupines 
walking down through a path near where I was set up at a campground. I felt really silly, really embarrassed, and probably should never repeat that story. But, you know, we have to overcome our own fears sometimes. And this was prior to me actually getting into a paranormal investigation group. So this is one of the things that I kind of fell back on as a story to tell people. Like, sometimes our worst enemy out in the field is ourselves and our perception of what's going on. So our biggest fear isn't really what's happening. It's our perception of what's happening around us. And I think that's was a key kind of concept I always try to train people when we're going into people's homes as far as investigating ghosts or even with cryptids about, you know, that fear comes from what we believe these things are capable of bringing to us. But in reality, all we really have to go on is what's already happened. So if nothing has happened, you see a creature in your backyard picking apples or doing whatever, and it doesn't do anything to you, it's probably not going to hurt you. If it had the opportunity to do so, it probably would have done it. Uh, So I've had a few cases of being nervous in the woods. I mean, you're always scared of coming over a hill and encountering a bear with a cub and maybe being between those two because that's not going to end in your favor pretty much if the mama bear decides to charge at you or do something. But I think a a lot of it is just being smart, knowing your environment, paying attention, and uh, again, not letting your perception of the environment influence your reaction to the environment. Well, it goes without saying, I like the way you think. I'm impressed. Considering how much you know about grass men, how often is it that you're presented with information about them that you didn't already know? I mean, sometimes you're investigating cases, you're investigating things that you you think you already know everything about, then all of a sudden you uncover a different report or something that happened and it was reported by another newspaper, or or you meet up with somebody who has a report from another researcher that you didn't know was involved in the case. And that's really when, as a researcher, you get excited because you don't don't always have access to all the information uh, you think you do until... Exactly this kind of thing happens and it it turns up and, you know, that kind of leads me to something I want to kind of show as a point here. We're we're getting to a point where research means looking up Google and Googling things and whatever's on the Internet. Well, young people need to understand that there's way more out there than what could fit on Google. And I know that's crazy to say that because we can find answers to everything, you know, what time a movie starts to any kind of historical thing. but you know, I got my start back in 1996. Google wasn't around back then. You know, I went to libraries. I had to research. I had to pick up books. I had to make phone calls. You know, I had to do all kinds of things that uh, you know takes you literally five seconds now to do through Google. But there's still a lot of data, a lot of information that precedes the internet that's still out there in a book. It's still out there in somebody's basement. It's in a, a box or it's cataloged somewhere that's not yet on the internet. Believe it or not, not everything is on the internet. So researchers need to not just research on a computer. They actually need to go out and read books and and look at books and talk to other people, talk to other investigators, talk to researchers that came before you. And also with that, research also includes going out to these locations, physically getting your boots on the ground. No good researcher has ever been a good researcher without actually being an investigator at the same time, being out there getting dirt between your your boots, getting dirt on your hands, and and getting in there and and looking at these things and evaluating it. Yeah, computer technology can get you so far, but again, there's so much information out there that we don't even know about because 
A lot of people are concerned with what's on the internet, but I'm telling you, the information that I get, that I learn, new things about cases here in Ohio, comes from old, outdated resources that are not available on the internet. That's where the true goldmine of information comes from. It's from the researchers of the past that kept files and kept that data and maybe didn't have the chance to ever put it on the internet. Yeah, it's funny. We have all these resources now, but sometimes the best way to get the job done is the old-fashioned way. You told us about the fifth book you wrote, titled The Handbook for the Amateur Cryptozoologist. Of all the books you've written over the years, would you say that one's your favorite one, even though you started it out as a ghost hunter? Honestly, it really is probably my favorite one because it's, you know, the ghost stuff uh, really started out as a skeptic toward it. I really didn't believe in a lot of this stuff, and it was a lot of research, and it wasn't a natural fit for me, I don't think, although I do like the psychological aspect of ghosts. But with cryptozoology, I mean, this is a field that basically, it found me. I didn't find it. Uh, you know, being an, an outdoors person, I'm not a hunter per se, but I enjoy nature. I enjoy being out in the woods. I enjoy just being out there. I'm plugging from society sometimes and plugging into nature kind of rejuvenates the batteries. It's what I used to do to get away. And through the years, I, I slowly realized that, you know, I have a natural connection for this. So maybe this is something I should get more into as far as cryptozoology. And for me, all I knew about it was Bigfoot. That's pretty much what you get shoved down your, your throat as a researcher is Bigfoot, Bigfoot, Bigfoot. But I learned that there was so much more to it. And it doesn't have to be just creatures. It could be plants as well. Sometimes there's plants that exist in places they're not supposed to exist. Not that I'm a, a plant cryptid guy, but, you know, interesting things. And I got into mountain lions as well, especially here in Ohio. Mountain lions aren't supposed to be here. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 2008, I actually investigated a few cases of Mount Lions, and that's really where my passion for cryptozoology is, is actually more on the almost explainable creatures and not so much on the wild and fantastic, almost mythical creatures like Mothman that defy physics and defy the laws of nature. But mine is more centered on more realistic animals. Although Bigfoot can kind of cross that bridge, it can kind of go from the more unrealistic, mythical, mystical type thing all the way to a physical flesh and blood creature. So Bigfoot is kind of one, I think that's the reason why it's one of the biggest ones, because it can be at any side of that bridge. But for me, I, I enjoy the, the natural creatures that aren't supposed to be here that we can uncover, that uh, state and uh, even government wildlife officials don't think are here. But uh, people are seeing these things. So I enjoy getting out there and talking with people, trying to find evidence of these creatures. And, you know, finding evidence of a mountain lion, really, no different than a Bigfoot. Because if a mountain lion, which is six foot long, nose to tail, can evade people and not be seen, enter the state, and all of a sudden be seen by somebody, well, well, why can't it Bigfoot? That's my question. As I'm sure you know, a lot of researchers seem to just go through the motions, but the zeal you obviously have for doing the research that you do is refreshing. I've got to tell you. You know, one thing I always tell people is, you know, research things, but 
also know the limitations of research. So if you know somebody says, hey, I saw a Bigfoot creature here at uh, West Branch Reservoir, and somebody saw one here, and I go back at a research and I go through Bigfoot Researchers Organization. Oh my gosh, I found there was a sighting here 25 years ago. Now, does that validate my current sighting? The answer is no, it doesn't validate it. Just because somebody else saw something many years ago doesn't bring credence to your sighting. So I caution people to use research with a grain of salt, that it doesn't prove anything. It just adds a little bit more data to potential explanation and maybe widens that possibility, but it doesn't prove anything. So you know, a lot of people spend way too much time trying to prove their case instead of actually collecting data and information to provide a pathway to the potential explanation. So just I, I would just caution people with that piece. No, that makes sense. Yeah, when you're doing this, it is easy to just jump to conclusions that are, I guess, convenient and easy to come to. So like I said, that does make good sense. Over the years, have you ever spoken with an eyewitness who reported having an aggressive encounter with a grass man? I've had a few people that uh, you claim to have rocks thrown at them. And their perception of it was violent in nature so that they were being uh, chased away. But again, that's their perception of that event. And, you know, I've, when I get that, I, I like to just, uh, you know, you obviously let the client talk. Let them speak. Let them have their say. You document everything that they're talking about. And then sometimes I'll go back and ask them questions. And more often than not, when I kind of push for how they felt or what they thought that you know, the meaning was behind that contact, you know, initially they'll say it was violent, you know, they're throwing rocks at me, trying to hurt me. And usually by the end of the conversation, they kind of admit that, you know, maybe it was more of, hey, I see you, I want you to know I'm here, I need you to leave my area kind of uh, thing, especially here in Ohio. And you hear different things, uh, you know, I've heard different things, I've read different things in books and internet accounts where the eastern Bigfoot is more aggressive than the western Bigfoot. But that's that's hearsay. That's just uh, speculation. Uh, I think just certain investigators like to uh, stir the water a little bit. But from my experience, from the people that I've talked to that have encountered things, uh, you know, no one's been physically attacked here in the last 20, 30 years. Now, if you go back to the 70s, you had a lot of these scary stories, you know, a lot of which I was talking about in my opening kind of monologue thing. And I think that's what the perception is, is that Bigfoot is this scary creature that attacks people. But I don't think that's really the case. I think in the 70s, there was so much going on that I think a lot of these cases were were just, I don't want to say wishful thinking, but I think a lot of additional cases, additional things that may not have actually happened. And it's funny now when you're hearing about these cases in the last 20, 30 years, you don't hear as much violence in them. It's more of these rocks being thrown just to say, hey, I'm here. Get away from me. Get out of my territory. I'm letting you know that I see you kind of situation or these just glimmer glances of seeing these creatures and they're trying to get away from people. You know, you don't see people having their doors kicked in or their cars flipped over or anything like that. But, you know, when these things are seen and the creature knows that you see them, you never know what could happen. I've heard some strange accounts of uh, creatures standing in front of people's cars and uh, not wanting to move to, you know, generally they're moving away from us. It's like any other wild animal. I'm pretty sure a seven, eight foot tall, 300 pound creature could pretty much 
make mincemeat out of me fairly quickly. But uh, not that I would give them the chance. Probably scurry off if I felt like something was going to happen. But it, it's interesting that they don't seem to do that. We don't hear accounts of people getting beat up or getting uh, injured by these creatures. So I think overall, if they are real, if they're really out there, they really don't want anything to do with us. Thank goodness they're not nearly as dangerous as a lot of people make them out to be. If they were, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Not only do you research them, you also give public presentations on them. When you give those presentations, how often do you have to deal with hecklers in the audience? Not often, but you know, I used to kind of cater to the public perception of all these things, whether it's ghosts, UFOs, or cryptids. But I'll be honest, nowadays, I speak how I feel and how I believe. And there are times where people do get a little tense that I'm trying to explain things away, that I'm giving obviously kind of a skeptical standpoint towards sightings of these creatures. And, you know, they challenge me on, well, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know? And, you know, my retort is, well, how do you know? How do any of us know that what goes on really happened? And that perception of a client is really what exactly happened because people make horrible witnesses. We see things. And again, it's our perception of the events that leads us to these cases. It's not really the physical creature. You know, I always tell people UFOs, we don't investigate a UFO. I mean, how can you? You know, are you going to lasso it out of the sky and bring it down? You can't. So we're actually investigating the experience of that person. And it's no different than any ghost case or any cryptid case. We're focusing on the story, the perception of that person, what they saw. So we can't say with conviction that, yes, they definitely saw a Bigfoot in their backyard. And we also can't completely dismiss it and say, no, they did not, unless we have something to back it up one way or the other. I mean, really, the data and the evidence is what makes or breaks the case. It's that interview or that sighting, their perception is what opens that case and brings you to it. But if you can gather anything that can support it or deny it, that's what can make or break. And if nothing can do that, then again, all we're left is with that perception. And we can't honestly say that we can believe it or we can't honestly say that we can not believe it. So I know that sounds wishy-washy, but that's where I survive. That's where I live on the trying to balance myself between belief and skepticism and all these viewpoints because it's so easy for people to believe in these things, but it's also very easy for people to dismiss them. And that's uh, one of the, another reasons to kind of go back and talk about my book again is that another reason why I'm proud of that book is it's very balanced in the way it was written. It's very balanced in the way I presented that information and I actually got it reviewed in the Skeptical Inquirer, which is one of the premier skeptical magazines in the United States. They actually gave it a positive review. Now, that means a lot to me because it's very hard to appease the scientific community when it comes to content from cryptozoology. They pretty much dismiss it all, all in one fell swoop, that this is all just pseudoscience. It's not real. So if I can kind of prove to the scientific field, hey, this is how we should approach these things or how we should look at these things, and they kind of approve of it, I think that's very well-spoken for the cryptid field that people were to read this and this is how they learn from it instead of just television shows i think that's going to give you as a researcher or an investigator or both a very solid foundation to move forward in the field and, and that's another reason why i'm very very proud of it it's very balanced i don't want to hide on one end of the spectrum or the other because i think both of those 
whether you're a completely dismissive skeptic or you're a completely total true believer, I think you're ignoring other pieces of reality there. So I think you have to be as balanced as possible as a researcher. Well, as you know, when it comes to doing research, a lot of people blindly ignore reality. I don't know why a lot of these researchers come to the conclusions they come to, but having said that, it might be a bitter pill, Brian, but I don't think Sasquatch are going to be proven to be in existence until they decide to allow that to happen. I just don't see it happening by happenstance. No, and, and to your point, I think, unfortunately, people want to, you know, especially researchers of uh, anomalous topics, they want to support their beliefs. So they want to support their findings. And unfortunately, that's where we get into trouble, especially with the skeptical community or even the scientific community. You know, I always challenge people to, if you have a hypothesis about something or a story, don't try to find evidence or information that's going to validate your thoughts. Try to find things that are going to argue against it, because if you can use that as part of your, your evidence gathering methodology and you can disprove those things that go against you or use those as a way to view your case, you have a stronger case on your hands. If you can say, well, you know, tree stumps in this picture, you know, let me go to that location and take pictures, even though I'm pretty convinced this is a Bigfoot. If I go back to that area and take pictures at exact angles or the client says this creature was eight feet tall, let me go stand at the exact same spot this person stood in and have somebody stand in as this creature and see if that is exactly the right height. If we take a little bit more of a skeptical approach, and a lot of people don't like that skeptical word, they're fearful of it, but it's a good thing because we should be dismissing as much as we can in order to focus on what really counts. If we go into every case thinking that every case is genuine, it's a truly a Bigfoot, I'm telling you, more cases that you investigate, you're going to be a fool for because people are going to pull the wool over your eyes. You're going to have accounts of you know, people lying to you or giving you hoaxes and you're falling for it and you're going to report it. And you know, if they come clean with it, you're going to look pretty silly and, and people aren't going to trust you after a while. So you know, I approach every case not with the intention of dismissing it, but where does that evidence point me? And I can use the dismissive type of uh, claims to use that to my advantage to try to eliminate certain things from that case. But if you go toward a case of just saying, well, you know what, I think this person's full of it. I'm going to prove that this case isn't real. You probably will. But if you also approach it from the angle of, hey, I'm going to prove this case is genuine Bigfoot, I guarantee you, you're going to ignore the things that could help you dismiss certain parts of this case and actually come to a more logical conclusion or to help support that person in the long run, even if it is a genuine sighting. It's a fact of life that you usually find whatever it is that you're looking for. You made some really good points saying what you did about verifying findings. For any of the listeners who would like to attend one of your speaking engagements, what would they need to do to do that? Uh, they need to bring with them the following. Number one, an open mind. Number two, I recommend a notepad, a notebook. Uh, and I also need to know where to find me. And that is BrianDParsons.com. Those things there you're all set. I think I can teach people. That's actually my job. I work as somebody who teaches and trains people how to do their work and their positions. And, you know, I find that very natural for me to take a very difficult thing like this and, and funnel it into information that people can decipher and can interpret. So all of my books thus far have been uh, what I call handbooks. So even for the UFO 
investigators and researchers, even the ghost field stuff, and as well as this handbook for the amateur cryptozoologist. All this is information for a person really of any level to come into and learn about these topics. And I think every time I give a presentation, I try to change it up. I don't do the same one. So it depends on where you're going to listen to me speak as to what you're going to learn. Obviously, a library is more of a of an open range of people coming to hear me talk. So I may focus less on something specific and more of a general topic, but it depends on where I'm going that uh, I may focus on specific creatures or specific things. But I generally like to talk about all of cryptozoology, although everybody loves Bigfoot and Grassman. So you tend to focus on that a little bit more if I'm doing a cryptid presentation. I'll be honest, even though my latest release is on UFOs, most of my appearances are on cryptozoology. Ever since I wrote the book, people want to hear me talk about cryptozoology, which I love it. I'm more than willing to do it. And my calendar this year is is also filling up with cryptid events too. So I'm very happy with that. So if uh, I'm appearing at any library or any event near you, please come out. Uh, I will teach you something. And if I don't teach you something from my presentation, pull me aside and say, I didn't learn anything. And I'll try to teach you something. That's my goal is to have everybody walk away with, uh, you know, I'm not trying to change people's perception or their mind about these things, but just to kind of open their minds a little bit to all sides of this topic and to kind of embrace it as not as you have to believe or you have to not believe. It's okay to be in the middle. It's okay to question it. It's okay to you know, kind of falter back and forth with different topics within the overall theme. Stick to what you want to do, but also, again, be open-minded to other explanations. And don't fall prey to your beliefs and, and being locked in that that's how it has to be because you'd be surprised. There's all sorts of things out there that um, people cannot explain. So be open-minded. Well, it goes without saying, I really like your approach to all this. No denying that. Well, it's about time for us to call it, but before we do, you host your own podcast, Brian. Please plug it now. My podcast can be heard every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, so that won't interfere with your uh, Bigfoot Eyewitness show. So 8 to 9 p.m. every Tuesday night on the Paranormal King radio network at ParanormalKing.com. You can also find more information about my show at ParanewsInsider.com, and it's available pretty much anywhere you can get a podcast. My personal website is BrianDParsons.com. That's with an I. BrianDParsons.com. So you can find links to all of the things I'm involved with, contact information, also all of my appearances, links to my books, and everything else you've ever wanted to know or didn't want to know about me is also on that site. Well, that makes it easy. Brian, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing all that information with us. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time, Vic. It was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed talking about Grassman Bigfoot, especially Ohio stuff. I can't get enough of talking about it here in my own backyard. <laughs> no, I understand. It's been great listening to you talk about it. Well, having said that, thanks again so much for your time. Have a great night. That's it for another episode of Bigfoot Eyewitness Radio with Vic Cundiff. If you've had a Sasquatch encounter and would like to be a guest on the show, please go to BigfootEyewitness.com and submit a report. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Have a great night.